Welcome to another episode of the Rad Podcast. I am producer Brandon from the Rob Anybody and Don Show. Thank you for tuning in again to this week's episode. Uh, just to do a quick cleanup, quick follow-up from last week's uh, part about uh, survival. And thank you for all your reaction to that. I really do appreciate it. You can always email me directly at Brandon, B-R-A-N-D-O-N, at radradio.com. Or you can join us up at the Rad Podcast group on Facebook. All you got to do is go to Rad Podcast and type that in the search bar. And click to join. It's a closed group. It's a safe space. I know we don't like to say that kind of stuff in, in most places, but this is a safe space, and we, we like to keep it that way. I like to uh, keep it as a judgment-free zone for the most part. You know, politics and stuff kind of take a, take, take a break. We don't need all that stuff up there on the Rad Podcast group. We like to share a bunch of funny memes, videos, get people advice when they need it. When it comes to animals, when it comes to lifestyle, when it comes to the mumbo and the jumbo... And uh, it's a pretty pretty cool community up there. So if you want to check it out, go to Red Podcast, Red Podcast up on Facebook. Um, and I'm going to get to, I actually prompted uh, some of the prod heads to give me some UFO sightings because that's what it's all about today. I'm going to I'm going to be covering uh, some new reports that the, uh, the units, the United States Navy has actually released um, about their experiences with UFOs. And the Pentagon has actually admitted that they've been investigating UFOs all along. Which we already knew, you know, it's it's just a secret it's a secret thing. They can't really talk about it because they don't want to let the let the secrets out. And I have my speculations and conspiracies, and I think that the government's all in on it. After Roswell, we acquired all of this technology, and we've been uh, toying with it. And I'm I'm sure that some technology that we're using today has evolved from alien technology. I'm going to say that right now. And if I get assassinated at some point in the next couple of weeks for saying something like that, then you'll know it's true. Something's going on behind the scenes, and uh, it sounds like the government is starting to at least own up to it. Something that we've already known. Whether or not they're going to reveal any of their findings or show us what they've experienced or any of the technology that they've uh, come up with from all of the alien technology that has crashed down on Earth. Or maybe the aliens have already invaded, and they're all among us, and they're all the greys, quote-unquote, are uh, living amongst us and, and aiding us along the way in being uh, better humans, or maybe not. Maybe they're toying with our society and using us as an experiment. Maybe we're just a big, uh, maybe we're just a big ant farm, and we're just trying to get along in their little game. Who knows? That's why we like to to play around with these ideas around here on the Red Podcast. Uh, but before I get into all the UFO stuff, I wanted to. Uh, touch up on a, a story that I mentioned in last week's survival episode about another missing Hawaiian hiker named Noah Mina, or as they call him on the island, Kekai. He was, he's been found, uh, but it's not some good news. Less than a week after the sensational discovery and rescue of a hiker lost in the Hawaiian forest for 17 days, the search for another missing Hawaiian hiker has uh, ended in tragedy. A search helicopter on Wednesday discovered the body of Noah Kekai Mina, who was a 35-year-old at the bottom of a 300-foot fall line near the summit of Mauna Kahalawai, a 1.7-million-year-old volcano on Maui, uh, the family members have said. Mina was reported missing on May 20th while hiking on the West Maui Forest Reserve, and Mina's body was found five days after the stunning rescue of Amanda Eller, who was stuck out there for 17 days. Uh, the same helicopter company that that found Amanda Eller, Windward Aviation, involved in the Eller search, found Mina's body. Mina's family thanks searchers and the general public for their support. And we brought our son, this is the family speaking, we brought our son, brother, and friend home today, just not the way we would ha have wanted and prayed for. 
the post said. Thank you, everyone who joined into this platform of love and support of Kaka'i. Your kind and loving sentiments meant the world to us, lifting us up every day. We descended the fall line in the helicopter at about 300 feet down. The sun was perfectly lighting the area, and there was a second when the rotor wash blew open the brush that was camouflaging his body, and that light reflecting off the skin, they were able to confirm it was Kaka'i. So, unfortunately, some some bad news after all those... Uh, those great stories of, of survival. Um, but it sounds like the same reason that Amanda Eller went out to uh, get that was out hiking was the same reason that Noah was out there. He's trying to disconnect from society and didn't take anything with him. The causes or the reasons were unknown ultimately of his death. But my speculation is since they found him at the bottom of a 300 foot fall, fall line that there was a, uh, he, he was hiking and he finally fell. And I'll tell you what, just being out there, in Hawaii, on uh, a couple of different islands. It's all very similar terrain from island to island. And if you take one small step off of the wrong, off of a trail, you're you're down hundreds of feet straight down. And that's just the way that this land is is uh, built. It's all volcanic, and you know there's very steep hills everywhere. And all you got to do is just take one wrong step, and there could be brush out out in the out on the sides of the trails that might look like there's something to stand on, but there isn't. And it's just one of those re- one of those things you got to definitely look out for when you're hiking out there in the wilderness of Hawaii. There's some great news actually on the heels of that from last weekend at uh, the Battle Rock Napa Valley Music Festival. Uh, Snoop Dogg took the stage and he made history and he was breaking records with none other than gin and juice by his side. Uh, (laughs) With the help of kitchenware brand Williams Sonoma, uh, they broke the Guinness World Record for the largest paradise cocktail on the Saturday night show of Bottle Rock Napa Valley. Sipping on this gin and juice drink would probably take a small army to finish with Guinness confirming the cocktail measured in at more than 132 gallons. The drink contained 180 gallons, uh, 180 bottles of gin, 154 bottles of apricot brandy, and 38 jugs of orange juice, according to Guinness. It wouldn't be a paradise cocktail with a big pink umbrella. Like it's it's literally like an umbrella that you would use for yourself to shade yourself on a beach. It's in this giant cup. If you check it out, Snoop, uh, Snoop Dogg breaks largest gin and juice. Uh, record. There's pictures of him all on social media and everything from his pages, and, and, and you can see this thing. It's it's amazing, and he has a giant straw that looks like uh, one of those one of those things that they use to uh, pole vault. It's just massive. Stirring this giant drink, um, looks like a good party though. I wonder if it was any good. They probably had had some party goers grab a bunch of cups and and pour it out for the rest of the crowd. But uh, I just thought I'd share that news off on the heels of the the bad news that. Uh, well, there's some terrible stuff happening in the world and people are dying. Snoop Dogg's getting his gin and juice on world record style up in Napa Valley. So one of the reasons why I wanted to bring up UFOs this week is because over the weekend or last week, I saw this story about Starlink satellite train. Um, and right away I had to click on it because I mentioned pulling a train and you know, you know me, I'm a big perv. I like to check these things out. Uh, but it had nothing to do with that, the, the pornography type of train. The Starlink satellite train is actually a new innovation from SpaceX that Elon Musk is trying to do uh, for the good of all mankind. He's trying to give Internet to people all around the world that don't have access to it 
Um, and uh, it, it prompted UFO sightings because the, the GIF that they created after this thing is actually very impressive. They sped up the frames and they show this streak of, of satellites going across the sky all in unison, just like a train. It's really cool. Uh, the satellite tracker in the Netherlands captured the stunning video of dozens of SpaceX Starlink satellites passing overhead. Uh, they were launched together late last week. Um, the chain of satellites looked like a giant brightly lit train chugging away in the night sky. Marco Lingbrook, a spy satellite tracker uh, and astronomer, spotted the, st- the string of Starlink satellites from a tracking station located in the Netherlands. And he, using data from the last week's launch of a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket, he calculated a probable search orbit, got his camera ready, and was duly rewarded. Just before 1 a.m. local time on May 25th, the Starlink train drifted into Langbrook's view. The satellites had only recently been deployed and were still parked in orderly, soldier-like formation. On his website, Langbrook wrote, My search orbit turned out to be not too bad. Very close in sky track and with the objects passing some three minutes early in the predictions. And what a spectacular view it was. And it is spectacular. It started with two faint flashing objects moving into the field of view. Then a few tens of seconds later, my jaw dropped as the train entered the field of view. I cannot help shouting, shouting, Ooh, ah! followed by a few expletives. I wish I knew what those expletives were. I would, I would report them, but they are not here. Uh, launched from Cape Canaveral, Florida, on May 23rd, the 60 satellites are the first build-out of Elon Musk's Starlink Internet constellation. Eventually, the plan is for this telecommunication system to provide low-cost broadband Internet access to paying customers around the world, including remote areas where Internet service is hard to come by. Starlink won't reach significant operation capacity until at least 800 satellites, 800s of them, uh, are placed in orbit. So the private company still has a way to go. And then late last week, the 60 Starlink satellites, each weighing about 500 pounds, were placed in low Earth orbit at an altitude of 250 miles. The intended orbit is much higher. According, each satellite is equipped. Accordingly, each satellite is equipped with a Hall ion thruster, which will enable the units to adjust their positions in orbit, hold an intended altitude, and even deorbit themselves when the time comes. So he's launching up these drone satellites to provide internet for people. This is fucking incredible. SpaceX doesn't expect these satellites to last more than five years, after which time they'll dip back into the Earth's atmosphere and disintegrate during reentry. SpaceX intends to replace old satellites with newer models over the course of the project, which will probably be reusable, just like the rockets that SpaceX is designing. Importantly, this Starlink train is, temp- is a temporary feature. The satellites will drift further and further apart with each successive orbit of Earth. This train, as Langbrook wrote at his website, will probably quickly dissipate. Langbrook wasn't the only person to see the amazing sight. Commenters at his website said they saw the formation in Minnesota, Australia, the United Kingdom, Canada, and elsewhere. Understandably, the strange sightings prompted concerns of UFOs. And thankfully, it wasn't an alien invasion. But this likely won't be the last Starlink train we'll get to see. And as a result, not the last time we'll experience a wave of related UFO sightings. Because everybody's like, oh my god, the train in the sky is coming to get us. SpaceX needs at least 800 Starlink satellites in orbit to gain full functionality of the system. And a total of 1,000 for the project to become economically viable for the company. Incredibly, Elon Musk also envisions as many as 12,000 Starlink satellites as part of the constellation. And if that's true, we can expect many more transient Starlink trains in the coming months and years. 12,000. That's quite a bit. And it's actually gotten a lot of astronomers uh, upset. And scientists on Earth are are complaining that it's going to create problems for uh, for those on, of us on the surface of the Earth 
who like to observe, not just amateur astronomers, but professional astronomers who use giant satellites to to view the whole universe. And for the astronomy community, it was uh, it was actually devastating to watch. As one astronomer said, it's going to become increasingly likely that the satellites will pass through the field of view and essentially contaminate your view of the universe. This guy, Darren Baskell, an outreach officer of physics and astronomy at the University of Sussex, tells The Verge, and it's going to be really difficult to remove that contamination away from our observations. Satellites are already an issue for astronomers studying celestial bodies in deep space. In order to get detailed images of objects many light years away from Earth, astronomers take long exposure shots the sky with their telescopes. This type of imaging entails leaving the telescope exposed to light for minutes or hours. And as a result, scientists can gather light from a very distant, faint object and figure out more about it. And for instance, it's a great way to learn what kinds of gases are in a faraway galaxy. Each type of gas emits different types of light, which astronomers can detect and identify. But whenever a super bright object passes through the field of view of a long exposure shot, the observation gets muddied. The light from the object tears through the image, causing a long bright streak through the sky. And satellites can be particularly bright since they're often made with reflective materials or have solar panels that bounce light from the sun. If it was just a point in an image, that wouldn't be too hard. Phil Bull, a theoretical cosmetologist at Queen Mary University of London. You could just ignore the bit around that point. But because it's a big line going through your image, it really gets in the way. Currently, there are about 5,000 satellites in orbit around Earth, around 2,000 of which are still operational. And these objects already cause the occasional streak and headache for astronomers, but with the addition of SpaceX's Starlink constellation, as well as other proposed mega constellations from OneWeb, Telesat, Kepler Communications, and now Amazon's getting in the space race, the number of operational satellites could increase significantly, and that would drastically up the risk of satellites stricken across telescope sightlines. Uh, but exactly how often will this interference happen remains to be seen. It all depends on where the satellites are above the Earth, the time of day, and the time of year. Satellites can be seen for a few hours around dusk and dawn when they catch the light from the sun as the sky dims. But they won't reflect light for many hours of the night whenever they are in the shadow of the Earth. So there, there's a de giant debate going on between Elon Musk and these astronomers saying that all of these Starlink satellites are going to cause problems with our uh, observations. But Elon is actually defending his position and downplaying the astronomy community's concerns, arguing that Starlink would have 0% impact on advancements in astronomy. He also claims that the satellites would not be visible when the stars are out and that the reason the International Space Station is visible at night is because it's got big, <laughs> is because it's big and has lights. Two statements that aren't true. The International Space Station has very large solar panels that reflect lots of sunlight, even at nighttime on Earth. Musk ultimately argued that we need to move telescopes to orbit anyway, since these instruments have to deal with interference from Earth's atmosphere, which I, I kind of agree. I agree with Elon on this point that there's so much space debris in orbit that we should be putting these telescopes in uh, past the satellite's orbit so we could get a clear view. We, there's so many obstructions just from our atmosphere alone. The light bends in so many ways. There's so many layers of our atmosphere that we can't even see past. Our human eyes and our equipment are working harder to view what's out in outer space just from the surface of the earth. And if we get all of our telescopes out in the satellite orbit area, it will allow us to see deeper into space. And the statement is naive, according to some astronomers. Telescopes can be built much bigger on earth with dishes more than 30 
uh, meters, which is 98 feet in diameter, allowing astronomers to take in a lot of light and get more detailed observations. Launching such a massive telescope off of Earth is incredibly difficult, requiring giant rockets, very complex engineering. Right now, NASA is working towards launching its biggest space telescope yet, the James Webb Space Telescope, which is a primary mirror that's a little more than the 20 feet wide. Developing that telescope for launch and for space has taken decades, and the cost has ballooned to nearly $10 billion. Taking these apertures off of the Earth and putting them in space is not technically feasible right now, says one astronomer. And when and if it becomes so, it's very, very expensive. Much more expensive than the telescopes we have on the ground of similar size. Now, yes, it is something that we should consider that when we put these satellites in the sky, we will only have only so much control. If you consider that the government is running it and there are government scientists that are using these satellites, it doesn't really allow public or private access to, for us to view these images unless they actually release them. Now, a lot of these astronomers are doing it on their own, on their own dime or privately uh, through corporations. And it does make it more difficult when we have more satellites in the sky. But this is just all a part of, of evolution. We, we need to keep moving with the times. We need to, while we need to consider space debris and everything that we're putting up in the orbit and everything that might interfere with our way of life on Earth, we also need to explore other technologies and getting it beyond what we are now. The, the, a lot of those satellites up there that are not operational are not operational because they're so obsolete. And there's there's so much more that we could be doing to explore the outer reaches of the universe. And I, I think that Elon is just is just trying to uh, advance humanity in a, in a way so that we can we can all live life to its fullest and have access to information that we want. But unfortunately, as we all know, Internet access all across the world just means more people looking at porn. That's all we're going to use it for selling drugs over the dark web. Unfortunately, that's just the way that humanity goes, but I feel like Elon has the uh, betterment of mankind in mind in all of these plans. While it is feasible now, over time, I think we have to expand our reach because it's here. The UFOs are here. We've seen them. The government is reporting on it. The Pentagon has even admitted to it. It's some cool stuff that they've got compiled here, and I'm not going to be able to fit it all in this episode. In fact, I'm only going to cover what the U.S. Navy has said and uh, what the Pentagon has, has finally admitted to. Uh, but first, before I do that, I wanted to get to my broadcast group post. I prompted people to uh, give me some stories about their experience with aliens, if they believe or have they had any UFOs. UFO sightings. And this is what the lovely prodheads have come up with from the Rad Podcast group. Raina says, my sister, my friends, and I saw what we thought was a UFO in middle school, um, like 1996, 1997. After we saw it, we just looked at each other in shock and never brought it up again. So yes, I do believe in them. I was also deathly terrified of the X-Files theme music when I was younger, and I would cry when I saw an alien on TV. That show sighting scared the shit out of me, but now I realize what a puss I was, and I'm into all things paranormal now. That's cool, Raina. I was actually terrified of, uh, what's that movie? The first Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I was terrified of that movie, and I don't know what it was. Like, when I was a really young kid, my parents were watching it in, uh, in, the, in, in the living room, and the, the last part of the scene, spoiler alert, when the Nazis get all uh, obliterated by the Ark of the Covenant when they open it up, they're all dying and they're all turning into dust. Lightning and everywhere, screaming and everything. And that was one of the most terrifying moments of my childhood, I remember. Now I love the movie. I can go back and watch it and it's no problem. But all that kind of stuff kind of scared me as a kid. But I, I've had a similar experience that uh, Noah did when I was a kid. Around 2007, 2008, 
this is Noah saying, I was standing with two friends outside in Rockland in what they call now the quarry district. And we were looking at the sunset. All three of us saw something glowing with a vague greenish light around its edges and a roughly round shape appear in the sky, dart around in kind of a triangle and disappear as it zoomed up through the clouds and back into the sky. It all happened in just a couple of seconds. We all looked at each other to make sure we had all seen it. And we all had. But to this day, we have no explanation for what we saw. We were all sober at the time. And even if we hadn't been, a shared hallucination would have been unusual, I'll say. And at the time, there were several similar sightings reporting in the area. And lots of speculation that it had something to do with Beale Air Force Base. But interest in it just kind of faded out. And no one followed up or ever really found out what it was. Now, I had a very similar situation when I was uh, I was hiking through Auburn. There's a... There's the confluence area down there, and I was out there with my friends late one night. We, we just wanted to see the stars. There's very, very little light from the town, especially at that in that time. I was like in middle school. No, not middle school because I was driving, so it was high school. Just had my license, so we were just kind of cruising around down there, and you could see the night sky pretty well from that area and didn't have to see too many stars because I saw a triangular shape just kind of pop down. It was high enough to kind of look like it was still in the stars, but low enough that it was moving around quickly and darting and then stopping and dart and then up it went. And it was a triangle of three lights. And I can't remember what the colors were. I just remember the three lights and they were they were shining in unison. They weren't like blinking like a normal plane would, you know, with a red light warning you that it's up there. This was just three lights darting left, right, then up, and it was gone. And I and none of my friends believed me, uh, but it just kind of left me going, well, what is that? And I just didn't really think anything of it until later on in life. What did Andrew say? He says, I was standing in my backyard one night several years ago, and I saw three lights in the shape of a triangle. Ah, see, me too, about six miles from my house. Almost as soon as they appeared, they slowly took off into the sky and disappeared. It freaked me out so bad I sprinted back into the house. That was it. That's the long story. But Katie says, Andrew, I saw the same thing, kind of hovering. We were in the car, so I lost sight of it, and it was gone by the time I could get a clear view of it again. This was in Napa somewhere around 2000, 2002. Oh, this, see, this is very similar timeline. But then Andrew says, uh, that's insane. My experience happened in 2008. Mine was in like 2002-ish. That was about a, uh, a sophomore junior in high school when that when my experience happened. Very weird. Rick is uh, Mr. Mr. Horny. I had him on the uh, on the podcast uh, a few few months ago. Him and Mrs. Horny were talking about the swinging lifestyle. And uh, actually today happens to be Rick's birthday when I record this. So happy birthday, Rick. He says, I've had what I would consider two official sightings. When I was a teenager, some friends and I were playing in the street. We did that back then. Back in the old days. And saw three lights and a triangle formation. They were moving forward, stopping, going back, stopped, and then all three went in three separate directions in the blink of an eye and disappeared. This is way before drones, so this can't be drones. I mean, Rick was born in the in the Stone Age, so this couldn't have been drones. Second time I was calling in the Mojave, I was camping in the Mojave Desert and saw an orange light moving all over the sky, changing directions instantly. This went on for about five minutes. It stopped, stayed in one place for maybe 20 seconds, and then took off straight up like a rocket and disappeared. If there had been cell phones back then, I would have had some great footage. Yep, I'm that old. Now, it's hard to get that real the real from place to place back then, I bet. That's all I got from the uh, the podcast, uh, from the Prodheads. 
a lot of similarities, some triangular shapes, some lights, some darting, some ups and downs. And then we have the Pentagon who finally admits it investigates UFOs. The Pentagon has finally uttered the words it's always avoided when discussing the possible existence of UFOs. Unidentified aerial phenomena. That's what they call it. UAPs. And admits that it still investigates and reports on them. In a statement provided exclusively to the New York Post, a a Department of Defense spokesman said a secret government initiative called the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program did pursue research and investigation in unidentified aerial phenomena. And while the DOD says it shut down the AATIP in 2012, spokesman Christopher Sherwood acknowledged that the department still investigates claimed sightings of alien spacecraft. The Department of Defense is always concerned about maintaining positive identification of all aircraft in our operating environment, as well as identifying any foreign capability that may be a threat to the homeland, Sherwood said. The department will continue to investigate through normal procedures, report of identified aircrafts encountered by U.S. military aviators in order to ensure defense of the homeland and protection against strategic surprise by our nation's adversaries. Jesus Christ. Man, the government officials have got to sum it up. Jeez. Nick Pope, who secretly investigated UFOs for the British government during the 1990s, called the DOD's comments a bombshell revelation. Pope, a former UK defense official turned author, said previous official statements were ambiguous and left the door open to the possibility that AATIP was simply concerned with next generation aviation threats from aircraft, missiles and drones, as skeptics claimed. This new admission makes it clear that they really did study what the public would call UFOs. It also shows the British influence because UAP was the term we used in the Ministry of Defense to get away from the pop culture baggage that came with the term UFO. A little smack talk between secret agencies. Ah, we used UAP first, not you. John Greenwald Jr., whose website, The Black Vault Archives, declassified government documents and UFO reports, Bigfoot sightings, and other subjects. Also called the Pentagon's use of the term unidentified aerial phenomena unprecedented in its frankness. I'm shocked that they said it that way. And the reason is, is they've seemingly worked very hard not to say that, he said. So I think that's a pretty powerful statement because now we have actual evidence, official evidence that said, yes, AATIP did deal with UAP cases, phenomena, videos, photos, whatever. And Greenwald said he hopes that the Pentagon will release more information about the AATIP, either by voluntary disclosure or through requests under the Federal Freedom of Information Act. But at least we're one step closer to the truth, he said. At the time, former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid took credit for arranging the $22 million in annual funding for the AATIP, telling the New York Times that it was one of the good things I did in my congressional service. Well, way to go, Harry Reid. Reid's home state of Nevada hosts the top-secret military installation known as Area 51, long rumored to be the storehouse of an alien craft that crashed in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. I mean, that's really not news, huh? They're just saying, yeah, we've we've investigated this, right? Well, let's hear from some actual Navy pilots that have actually seen some of this stuff. And this is this this is a uh, really interesting. And I wish we could speak more about it. And you'll you'll understand why they don't really spend too much time speculating on what is and what isn't. They don't want to create myths or give in to any urban legends because they're military men. They're they're there to do a job. Strange objects. One of them, like a spinning top moving against the wind, appeared almost daily from the summer of 2014 to March 2015. High in the skies over the East Coast. Navy pilots reported to their superiors that the objects had no visible engine or infrared 
exhaust plumes, but that they could reach 30,000 feet at hypersonic speeds. These things will be out there all day, said Lieutenant Ryan Graves, an FA-18 Super Hornet pilot who has been with the Navy for 10 years and who reported these his sightings to the Pentagon and Congress. Keeping an aircraft in the air requires a significant amount of energy. With the speeds we observed, 12 hours in the air is 11 hours longer than we'd expect. In late 2014, a Super Hornet pilot had a near collision with one of the objects and an official mishap report was filed. Some of the incidents were videotaped, including one taken by a plane's camera in early 2015 that shows an object zooming over the ocean waves as pilots questioned what they were watching. Wow! What is that, man? One exclaims. Look at it fly! No one in the Defense Department is saying that the objects were extraterrestrial, and experts emphasize that earthly explanations can generally be found for such incidents. Lieutenant Graves and four other Navy pilots who said in interviews with the New York Times that they saw objects in 2014 and 2015 in training maneuvers from Virginia to Florida off the aircraft carrier Theodore Roosevelt, and they make no assertions of their provenance. But the objects have gotten the attention of the Navy, which earlier this year sent out new classified guidance for how to report what the military calls unexplained aerial phenomena or unidentified flying objects. Joseph Gratisher, a Navy spokesman, said the new guidance was an update of instructions that went out to the fleet in 2015 after the Roosevelt incidents. There were a number of different reports, he said. Some cases could have been commercial drones, he said. But in other cases, we don't know who's doing this. We don't have enough data to track this. So the intent of the message of the fl- to the fleet is to provide updated guidance on reporting procedures for suspected intrusions into our airspace. Those sightings were reported to the Pentagon's shadowy, little-known Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, which analyzed the radar data, video footage, and accounts provided by senior officers from the Roosevelt. Another military official who ran the program until he resigned in 2017 called the sightings a striking series of incidences. The Navy recently said it currently investigates military reports of UFOs, and military officials and other participants say the program, parts of it still remains classified, has continued in other forms. The program has also studied video that shows a whitish oval object described as a giant tic-tac about the size of a commercial plane encountered by two Navy fighter jets off the coast of San Diego in 2004. And then Leon Golub, a senior astrophysicist at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center of Astrophysics, said the possibility of the extraterrestrial cause is so unlikely that it competes with many other low-probability but more mundane explanations. He added that there are so many other possibilities, bugs in the code for the imaging and display systems, atmospheric effects and reflections, neurological overload from multiple inputs during high-speed flight. And then Lieutenant Graves still cannot explain what he saw. In the summer of 2014, he and Lieutenant Danny Acoin, another Super Hornet pilot, were part of a squadron, the VFA-11 Red Rippers out of Naval Air Station, Oceana, Virginia. That was the training for deployment in the Persian Gulf. Lieutenant Graves and the Acoin and Acoin spoke on the record to the Times about the objects. Three other pilots in the squadron also spoke to the Times about objects but declined to be named. Lieutenant Graves and Acoin, along with former American intelligence officials, appear in a six-part History Channel series, Unidentified, Inside America's UFO Investigation. That began airing last month. The Times conducted separate interviews with key participants. The pilots began noticing the objects after their 1980s-era radar was upgraded to a more advanced system. As one fighter jet after another got the new radar, pilots began picking up the objects and ignoring what they thought were false radar tracks. As technology's gotten better, they're able to see these things better. 
People have seen strange stuff in military aircrafts for decades, Lieutenant Graves said. We're doing this very complex mission to go from 30,000 feet diving down. It would be a pretty big deal to have something up there. But, he said, the objects persisted, showing up at 30,000 feet, 20,000 feet, even sea level. They could accelerate, slow down, and then hit hypersonic speeds. Lieutenant Acoin said he interacted twice with the objects. The first time, after picking up the object on his radar, he set his plane to merge with it, flying 1,000 feet below it. He said he should have had been able to see it with his helmet camera, but could not, even though his radar told him it was there. A few days later, Lieutenant Acoin set a training missile on his jet, locked on the object and his infrared camera picked it up as well i knew i had it i knew it was not a false hit he said but still i could not pick it up visually at this point the pilots said they speculated that the objects were part of some classified and extremely advanced drone program which could have been but i don't think so but then the pilots began seeing the objects in late 2014 lieutenant graves said he was back at the base in virginia beach when he encountered a squadron mate just back from a mission with a look of shock on his face. He said he was stunned to hear the pilot's words. I almost hit one of those things, the pilot told Lieutenant Graves. The pilot and his wingman were flying in tandem about 100 feet apart over the Atlantic east of Virginia Beach when something flew between them right past the cockpit. It looked like to the pilot a sphere encasing a cube. The incident so spooked the squadron that an, that an aviation flight safety report was filed. The near miss he and other pilots interviewed said angered the squadron and convince them that the objects were not part of a classified drone program. Government officials would know fighter pilots were training in the area, they reasoned, and would not send drones to get in the way. It turned from a potentially classified drone program to a safety issue, Lieutenant Graves said. It was going to be a matter of time before someone had a mid-air collision. What was strange, the pilot said, was the video showed objects accelerating to hypersonic speeds, making sudden stops and instantaneous turns. Something beyond the physical limits of a human crew. Speed doesn't kill you, Lieutenant Graves said. Stopping does, or acceleration. Ask what they thought the objects were? The pilots refused to speculate. Why did it sound like I was drunk when I said that? The pilots refused to speculate. It wasn't that hard. We have helicopters that can hover, Lieutenant Graves said. We have an aircraft that can fly at 30,000 feet and right at the surface. But combine all that in one vehicle of some type with no jet engine and no exhaust plume? Lieutenant Acoin said... Only that we're here to do a job with excellence, not to make up myths. Now, with all these witnesses and all these accounts with the, with the Navy, it, it got me going deeper into the rabbit hole. And I got to tell you, it's not just UFOs that could be up there. It could be flying jellyfish, walking squids, or octopod monstrosities. I'm telling you, there, there, there's so much that we don't know that we can't see. There, there's, there's a field of vision that... We cannot even comprehend when it goes above the earth, when the atmosphere is filled with multiple layers that we cannot even explore yet, the depths of the ocean that we can't even see, that we can't even comprehend exploring. And we are just now recently starting to map the bottom of the ocean and explore these new worlds below the, the, the oceans. Now there's more that could be explored in our own skies, that these pilots are experiencing these Run-ins with might be UFO technology, it might be alien technology, or it could just be natural occurring beings that we can't understand, that we can't tell what they are. And I have a whole lot of evidence here that uh, that I that I got to go through. There's there's just so much here about encounters of of strange flying jellyfish and floating sprites, which are, which are like flashes of light in the sky, and they they're not exactly the same as these 
darting mechanical type of objects. These are like living creatures that are up in the atmosphere. They might be aliens, but they might be part of the natural order of the planet. And I'm going to get into those episodes, that stories, those stories, and I'm going to get into those stories next week, along with a, a report about a new laptop. It's actually not a new laptop. This is a very old laptop that could be the most dangerous laptop in the world. And if it were to ever get out of its air-gapped, isolated box, it could cause up to $95 billion in damages. And this laptop sold at auction for $1.345 million, and it's been dubbed the Persistence of Chaos. So I'm going to cover the, the most dangerous laptop in the world, flying jellyfish and walking squids and octopod monstrosities, and I'm also going to go into the uh, multiple witness accounts of the Trumbull County UFO incident. Very interesting stuff. And I'm going to get into all that stuff next week. There's so much to unpack here, but I, I just wanted to start digging into the wormhole, get your brains going, and, and opening up your minds to the possibility that there might be other life out there. Until next time, namaste, bitches. The Rad Broadcast.